0: Welcome back to Dose Makes the Poison, the ToxCast. It's episode eight of the show, and I hope everyone is staying safe out there uh, amidst this uh, COVID-19 virus pandemic. Uh, but today, we've got a special guest. I'm happy to have this person on. I'm talking, uh, we're going to talk some forensic science and reality and on television. Uh, special guest is Dr. Justin Justin Brower. Uh, welcome to the podcast sir how you doing hey kevin doing well uh that's good to hear um for for the audience um could you give them a little bit of your background in forensic talks sure. chemistry what how you came to be in forensic talks what you do now
1: uh, if you're able to talk about it I mean yeah a little bit how how i got into toxicology well i kind of fell into it literally um you know my background is in organic chemistry, synthetic organic chemistry, and that's what my my doctorate is in, Um, and then, you know, did postdoctoral work and went to go work for a small, you know, biopharmaceutical company, you know, drug discovery, drug development, and, you know, I I really love that, Um, but the pharmaceutical industry is just so weird and wacky. Um, It's such a roller coaster of, you know, whether or not the small company is going to get funding or not, you know, how much longer is going to, you know, be viable as a company. I mean, even large companies are always, you know, laying people off. So there's not a lot of stability there. And when the company finally went bankrupt and kind of split into two different entities, I decided I'm just tired of this. You know, I've, you know, got kids and, you know, young family, and I just wanted something different, something more secure. Um, So I'm just like hanging out for a summer with the kids and, um, saw a job opening with the medical examiner's office uh, supervising the lab, and so I interviewed for that. And um, they happened to have, um, you know, two you know LCMSs, you know, liquid chromatography mass spectrometers, but nobody knew how to use them. And you know, at the time, tox labs in like 2009 weren't using them, you know, all that all that much. Um, so I happened to have a skill set that you know was desirable for them, and you know, supervisory experience and. So, I went to go work for the medical examiner's office. I had no idea what toxicology was, what forensics was. I never watched, you know, CSI, um, NCIS, or any of those types of forensic shows that were on at the time. <laughs> Consider I, so yourself like, lucky. <laughs> so, I had like no clue what I was getting myself into. Um, and man, I started working there and I thought, you know, I'm going to do this for like six months before I kill myself. I just, it was just weird. Um, but I really grew. love it and to like the toxicology side of things. You know, I had, you know, from my work in drug discovery and development, I had a a good background in pharmacology and drugs and things like that. And it translated very well into forensic toxicology and having the background in organic chemistry, being able to, you know, look at a drug structure, know, you know, how you can extract it well, how it's going to ionize or break apart in the mass spec and, you know, put pieces together. So it was, um, it was a good skill set to have. And it's obviously paid off for me. But I'm um, now a forensic toxicologist, been doing it for about 10 years now. Um, And I, for the most part, I I enjoy the work. It's, um, you know, fascinating to see, you know, how people die, how they, you know, kill each other, kill themselves, and so forth, keeping track of, new drugs, there's always something to, you know, keep you on your toes or to, to keep you interested. You know, 99% of what we do is pretty routine and mundane. You know, it's heroin overdose, fentanyl overdose, you know, cocaine, you know, and if it's not drug related, you know, it's, you know, gunshot wounds, hangings, things like that. But it's that 1% of the cases that are interesting, you know, something different, you know, to, to keep you on your toes, keep you interested. The weird and unusual, you know, cases. Um, so that's my story. So why am I here today, Kevin? Oh, why are you here? Uh, well, yeah.
0: I we both watched a, a, a Netflix series, a brand new Netflix series um, called "How to Fix a Drug Scandal." Yeah, and I think it brought some brought some feelings to the front, or brought some old feelings to the front, and thoughts to the front of
1: of of. It, what we we're thinking I mean it it did I mean when these cases came out when was that like 2012? yeah, it was 12 so, 13 somewhere right around there. I mean I'd been in forensics for about three years or so and you've been doing this longer than I have. Um, but I mean it was just like a huge scandal um and I think we knew that it was a worse scandal than what it was being portrayed. In the news. I mean, the news was saying, hey, this is horrible. And I'm thinking, yeah, they haven't scratched the surface of this thing yet. It's, it's bigger and deeper than people realize. And I just hated it because, you know, dry labbing things or, um, you know, tampering with the evidence in a forensics lab, I mean, that's like the worst sin you can possibly commit. And forensics was already under scrutiny before then. Um, you know, due to, you know, lack of standardization across labs in the country and not having like a, a national standard uh, that, that people follow. And so Forensic was already, you know, staring down the barrel of a gun, so to speak. And then you had these two, um, you know, huge scandals, coincidentally, both in Massachusetts, um, was just, you know, a, a punch in the gut, you know. So we had the Annie Dukin case first. Punch in the gut, and then the uh, the Sonia Farrakh case. I mean, that was just like a kick in the nads. It just <laughs> you hurt. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It's terrible. I mean, uh, so before we get
0: into it, I mean, um, this film is called I mean, the series. It's a four episode series on Netflix, um, made by Erin Lee Carr. Uh, she's a documentary documentary filmmaker. Uh, she previously directed. Um, a movie or a doc documentary in 2015 called "Thought, Thought Crimes: The Case of the Cannibal Cop," which I, I watched. That was uh-huh. pretty good. Uh, "Mommy Dead and Dearest" uh, in 2017, which was the story of Dee Dee Blanchard and Gypsy Rose Blanchard, um, kind of the um, Munchausens by Proxy type case, um, and they actually made that into a Hulu series as well. Um, that story. Um, which was excellent. The documentary is excellent, and the Hulu series is excellent. Have you watched that? I have not, no. Uh, I'll check that one out. Yeah, I highly recommend that. Um, she also did last year, um, I Love You, Now Die, uh, the <laughs> Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. Um, that was the texting suicide
1: case. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, that was horrible, too.
0: Yeah, that was a horrible case, uh, Michelle Carter. I mean, it kind of brought up questions of, how far is too far, how, I mean, how culpable is somebody um, via text when you're trying to maybe spur them on to do certain things, but you never, you didn't really do it, Uh, but it was was a really good, really good series, takes a little bit of both sides, looks at both sides of things, Um, and then she also did uh, a documentary on the USA Gymnastics scandal, the Larry Nasser sex abuse, molestation okay. scandal that just happened. Um, and it, that one was called "At the Heart of Gold," uh, inside the USA Gymnastics scandal. So another good one from last year. So Aaron Lee Carr is, I mean, obviously well versed in this documentary style, and this series, it is is you had already pointed out it, it it's it focuses on Two of those cases, really one of those cases more than the other, but it focuses on Annie Dukin, who was a chemist in the Massachusetts crime lab system, and um, Sonny Farrakh, who was a chemist for the Massachusetts state crime lab. Um, And both of their cases are similar, but then they're not similar. Uh, (laughs) Annie Dukin's case was uh, a little bit or pretty much all falsifying data. Dry labbing, that sort of thing. And Sonia Farrakh is a whole other animal, in my opinion. And things that I didn't know happened that were brought to light, um, like you said, where we kind of we kind of knew things were going on. And we kind of, when we, we heard the news, hey, certain things happened and it sounds really bad. But with this information, it was really bad. Yeah. So do you want to talk about Andy
1: Dukin for a minute? I mean, Sh- Sure. In both of these cases are, you know, for me, they, you know, they, you know, they make me a little upset, you know, because it's, you know, slandering our field, you know, our chosen profession. Um, But they kind of upset me for very different reasons. Um, The Annie Dukin one upsets me because, um, well, one, she was this dry lab, you know, to give the backstory, you know, she uh, was a drug chemist, so you know, for those that don't know, if, you know, the police, you know, find drugs on a suspect, you know, from a, a drug deal or, you know, a traffic stop or something like that, you know, they'll take the drugs as evidence and they send it to their drug lab for analysis. So the drug chemist is working on the bench in the in the laboratory doing um, chemical analysis, either uh, like color tests and, and or mass spectrometry to identify what the drugs are, you know. So if, when they go to court, if, you know, their prosecutor is saying, hey, they had cocaine on them. Well, there's proof that, yes, it was indeed cocaine. The analyst did X, Y, Z to prove that it was, in fact, cocaine. And, then, you know, that gets disputed in court if they want to or not. Um, but it's an important job for the prosecution. But Annie Dukin, we don't really have a whole lot about why she did this other than because she hasn't talked to the media at all, really, since she was sentenced. Yeah, she um, hasn't said a single thing, oh really. Words. Like you wouldn't even know she's still alive. I thought I honestly
0: thought she had died because I hadn't uh. heard anything from her. But when I looked it up, she—I mean, obviously she's still
1: living—and yeah, um, but she just seemed to want to be the superstar of you know her her lab and of the system, and I think she really kind of really um, got off on or just really enjoyed the attention of being a rock star and being, you know, involved in the prosecution of these cases. And, but there were so many red flags. I mean, her supervisors would note in you know, her um, performance reviews that, you know, she does like three, four, five times more work than all the other chemists in that lab. Yet at the same time, they never really saw her in the lab a whole lot. I mean, how does that happen? You know, <laughs> they, they do so much work, but we never see her do it. Huh? I don't know. <laughs> red flag a huge red flag. And then just beyond that, it's just some sort of like sociopathic tendency in her where um, you know a part of that came out in the documentary that I didn't know about is that you know she she forged another district attorney's email. She wrote an email essentially to herself pretending to be this district attorney, um, another um, female district attorney. You know, saying, "Oh, Annie, we've got to get you, you know, a boyfriend. You're divorced from your husband, and yada yada yada. You're so great. You're so wonderful." And when in fact none of that was true, she was still married. Um, pro- maybe she was looking for a boyfriend, but she was still married, and then happened to slip that into, um, you know, a you know young male um, district attorney, I guess she was attracted to him and wanted to make herself seem available to him. And they had like a flirtatious type of email stuff going on. Yeah. Seemed, that, that's, it, that's right. <laughs> you know, and it seemed very innocent on, on his end, you know, the, the, male district attorney. Um, but obviously she wanted something maybe a little bit more, of, uh, you know, from their relationship, but it's just weird how she just tried to like, you know, integrate herself, into this whole process um you know and and talking with defense attorneys and the emails that came out about you know oh your client should just plead guilty otherwise they're going to get an extra 10 years and all that and it's like lady you're a drug chemist you're an analyst in a lab you know stay in your lane like you should have like no contact with defense attorneys and stuff like that it it's just mind-boggling. So I think she just really wanted the attention. Um, and so obviously, you know, we we alluded to it, she was just dry labbing. And what that means is she was making up reports and saying that, yeah, you know, that powder was cocaine when she never tested it, maybe never even laid eyes on it and testified in court that, yeah, it was cocaine, but no tests were done um falsified reports and that's like the worst thing you can possibly do
0: yeah i mean make me ultimately it's making shit up is what it is and i mean falsifying data making stuff up just randomly whatever hey i'm gonna assign positive negative to this case whatever it might be i mean just making things up which is it is the worst um, in my opinion, of what you could really do, especially in a, a forensic science system where, I mean, it is your job. I mean, you, you talked about the, the emails to the prosecutors or, or whoever, and it was, it's our job, as, I mean, it's my job, it's your job, it's a drug chemist's job in a forensic science system to be an arbiter of the science you're not forming personally you shouldn't be per- forming personal relationships with these prosecutors and hey i'm getting a we're getting a pros- we're getting a conviction today i mean that's not that sort of relationship yeah. i mean i'm friendly with a lot of prosecutors only because i mean they we work with a lot of prosecutors we work with a lot of defense attorneys so we know them but it's it's one of those Hey, I'm here for the science, and that's a, the science and the science alone. Um, and she was forming these, as you said, you alluded those emails where I'm going sh- to, if I have to show up in this court uh, in, in two days, this, this you better tack on an extra 10 years or something that I think an email read that. Yeah. And uh, just the kind of the tone of the emails and what she was saying in those was was very... Very troubling, obviously. Um, but, yeah, she – and I, I still don't – we, we'd already said this, but I still don't get it. I mean, other than the craving for being a top-notch worker, a, the, the star, um, I just – ultimately, I wish she would talk, and I wish she would oh, say yeah. something. Maybe he will
1: come on your show. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I probably did not have some nice words to say to her. No. But, I mean, the end result was that the lab was shut down um, in Hinton, Massachusetts. The lab was shut down. The directors of the lab were fired. Um, People lost their jobs. Um, Something like 20,000 convictions were overturned. So every single report she ever did, you know, is suspect or was suspect. You know, you don't know if she actually did the work on it. Or not, And so they could have retried all those cases. They could have sent, you know, 20,000 pieces of evidence out to another lab for analysis to see, you know, were these drugs or not? You know, what what were they? Um, But in the end, they they did the right thing and just, you know, overturned all those convictions. Or maybe they didn't overturn the convictions. They just let people go. They may still have something on their records, I think. Yeah. and I think it was somewhere like upwards
0: of, honestly, about 30, like over th- up to 34,000 total wow. cases potentially uh, that crazy. were affected, which is insane.
1: Yeah. Um, but, just you know, the worst part, though, is that she got off really light. She oh, served yeah. about two years in jail. That's it. I mean, she put people behind bars. She took away their liberties. I mean, somebody could have had you know, a bag of, you know, table salt or something on them, and she called it cocaine, and those people are sent to prison for it. And what we have to remember, and I think a lot of people don't think about, is that, you know, these people that are, you know, accused of these drug crimes, they're usually very marginalized from the get-go. They're poor, they're impoverished, they're in a, a tight spot. A lot of them have their own choosing, I get it. Um, I I know what people will say, but these people aren't like OJ. They don't have money for an adequate defense. And so they have a court-appointed attorney um, who are overworked. These could be really good attorneys. Um, I've met a bunch of them, and I'm usually pretty impressed with them, Um, but they're just overworked. And so if a prosecutor is saying, hey, plead guilty to this, and, you know, you'll get like two or three years, or if you don't plead guilty and you're convicted, you're looking at, you know, eight, nine or 10. And then are looking over their court appointed attorney who's juggling like 12 other cases. You know, they they may take that, you know, guilty plea and certainly oh, yeah. a couple years. And so even if they know they're innocent, um, they may not see a lot of other options. And so she put people behind bars. Um, in jail some of them may have been innocent not all of them um, but some of them very well could have been and they served more time than she did Um, they were innocent and may have done nothing wrong and she was guilty as hell and served about two years it's just mind boggling to me Um, she should have been put in jail the rest of her life because um, she took away people's liberties. I mean, she might as well just have kidnapped them and put them in her basement. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I
0: don't see much of a difference. I don't get how she. I mean, I don't get how she got five, three to five years imprisonment, um, yeah, and, and two sense. years probation, but then she
1: was released on pr- parole after about two years. Um, good behavior. I, I mean, I don't know what the Massachusetts system is like. Um, overcrowding, who knows? But it it wasn't nearly enough. Um, just a sociopath. Just and, and like you said, like what was she expecting to get out of it? I mean, it's not like she was the type of person that had the the education and so forth that you know she was going to like get propelled up the ladder and become like a DA or the head of something. It's like you know, she had a, a degree in the, some science—I forget—and you know went to go work in this lab, and that's what she's probably going to be doing her entire career if she didn't do this. Well, she that's was, the
0: thing. She also she also claimed a degree on her CV. She did, yeah. Um, and she
1: didn't have that specific degree. Yeah, she so, said which
0: she. We all know like, is a big no-no
1: to. Uh, yeah. Some sort of like um, master's degree from like Harvard Online or something like that that she never. Never did. So, it's just so bizarre. I I think she just wanted the attention. She wanted to feel part of the system, like she was doing good or something like that. And just I don't know. I don't. I don't know how it even starts. Like, how do you dry lab the first time? Like that very first time, you're like, you know what? I'm just gonna make shit up. Um, it's just it, crazy. It, it, it just it. I,
0: I don't get it either, and it's one of those things where, like you just said, um, how do you make that decision the first time, and then after you do it the first time, you're like, okay, well, either that felt good, or I'm now embarrassed. I mean, you make the decision again to do it a second time, and then a third time, and then thousands, tens of thousands of times after that.
1: And she could have gotten away with it, too, if she were a little bit more careful because wasn't she caught by, she didn't um, like adequately fill out her chain of custody. Like she was missing some entries on some chains of custody that like she handled some specimens. So they did an internal audit. Yes. And I then, believe that was the case. And so then that little internal audit, you know, they're like, and people have forgotten to do that. I mean, we, we all have, you know, oh, yeah. and, it's usually not a big deal, but they probably had you know one, one protocol in these labs, just one that they followed, and, and it worked. Um, you know, just to, to do the minimal investigation is like, hey, next time do your chain of custody, and like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't so and so's initials. Um, turned out she forged those, and it snowballed from there. So I mean, if if she had filled out her chain of custody correctly, she could still be doing this for all we know.
0: And I think the one thing this – I mean, this case brings out as well, but the next case as well, the Farrak case, um, lab supervision and management in a lab, like proper supervision, (laughs) proper auditing of data, proper um, procedures and auditing of procedures and and employees and that sort of thing as well, where – I mean, in in Dukin's case, I mean, you had – multiple employees going to supervisors and telling them that something was up here. She's doing multi time factor orders of magnitude more than what the normal analyst would do and in regards to casework and they would document it and nothing would really ever come out of that.
1: Yeah, Um, like, oh, she's our star. We love her. She's great. Um, and it was bad enough that you had other
0: employees, though, colleagues, yeah, yeah. going to supervision and saying something about, hey, something's possibly up here. I mean, we don't know how she's getting this work
1: done. But, I mean. And, and one thing I read that was interesting to me, too, is that, you know, she was working when the Melinda Diaz came out in 2009. Yes. And her productivity increased during that time. And for those that don't know, Melinda's Diaz was a Supreme Court case that granted um, people accused of a crime to face their accuser. Um, so before, in a, like a drug lab, you know, you would just have somebody testifying to the results of, you know, this drug analysis that it was cocaine. Well, after Melinda's Diaz came out, um, it was ordered or ruled that they had the right to face their accuser and their accuser is the person that did the testing of those drugs. That would be someone like Annie Dukin, you know, the drug chemist. And the effect of that in, uh, forensics labs across the country was every single person was getting a bajillion subpoenas to go to court. So anyone that ever touched any evidence was going to court. Um, and that probably affected you a lot. So yeah, It did. Maybe she went to court, you know, a few times during the week. Well, now probably all she was probably doing was going to court. Um, You know, instead of, like, 10% of her time going to court, you know, it probably morphed into, like, 75%, 80% of the time going to court. It was a a huge deal. And she did more work during that time, which is a head scratcher. How can you do more work when you're not in the lab? (laughs) So there were so many red flags. Yeah. Yeah, that – Mel- yeah, Melinda's Diaz. That I mean, that
0: has affected like, um, like I, I'm in a private toxicology laboratory, and uh, we do everything. Um, it's it's a large volume testing, um, and it, it, it's one of those things where there are five to ten people that touch the sample or the entire case from beginning to end, so it can affect. And you can have analysts called into the court to testify. And this has happened where you have all five to 10 analysts under subpoena to go testify to their part of the chain of testing, that they handled the sample. They uh, transferred the aliquots of the sample. They performed the organic extraction. The person that... uh, ran the instrument, whether it was an LCMSMS or GCMS, or whatever it was, the person that reviewed the data, the person that acted as peer certifying, uh, peer uh, review on the data, the toxicologist in our lab that reviews the final report and signs out cases. Um, so we've had people, um, it affected us, where there were 10, 11, 12 people out on a case. And it's only happened a couple of times, luckily. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, that 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 ruling did for a while have a uh, effect on the number of subpoenas we were
1: actually getting. Yeah. So so many flags. <laughs> so many opportunities. So now we've got the uh, the Sonia Farrick case. Yes. Again talk about she, that one. The, the background she, on that.
0: Yeah, she's a little bit different. Um I she is not Annie Ducan. I mean she is not falsifying data. she's not dry labbing per se. Um, she is, like we said, she's a chemist in the Massachusetts Crime Lab family. Um, I believe she was in Amherst, yeah, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, she was actually arrested in 2013 on evidence or on charges of evidence tampering. and she ultimately was convicted and, and served 18 months in prison. Um, uh, which she got less, I mean, she served less time than Annie Dukin. I mean, obviously different circumstances here. Um, And a lot of this series was focused on Sonia Farak's case um, in regards to what was actually going on. And at the Amherst Lab, they weren't well-funded. When they get into the story here, they, the lab itself is not a very well-set-up lab. I mean, I mean you had un- unsecured controlled substances and reference standards. Um, now, do you want to explain what a reference standard is to all
1: of us? Sure. I mean, a reference standard is just um, a known pure compound that you use to compare your, in this case, drug evidence against. So you have a, ideally like a 99.99% pure sample of cocaine that you can trace its source where where it came from Um, it has lot numbers and things like that so you can track it um, that you would use to compare to your drug evidence and so these labs are going to have you know lots of different drug standards um you know one for every single type of drug they could likely encounter so cocaine heroin you know oxycodone methamphetamine and so forth Um, and they had a lot of reference standards in that they, lab.
0: They lab had a like, lot of large volumes of reference standards. Yeah, I which
1: would, I, was, that floored me, honestly. I, I couldn't quite wrap my head around why. <laughs> <laughs> well, but again, it goes back to the supervision. And it was not a well-run lab, in my opinion. They really had no quality assurance or quality control program there. They had minimal supervision Um, They were probably overworked, underfunded. Um, You know, they allude, uh, you know, to the fact that you know they're you know underpaid and stuff like that. But
0: come on, I think all of forensics is underpaid. That's that's
1: everybody, and they could have been paying these people twice as much. They could have been paid the highest salaries, you know, in the country, you know, for the jobs they do, and this still would have happened. You know, she just became addicted and dependent upon drugs, and it just snowballed from there.
0: Yeah, it snowballed quickly because she, I mean, with the lack of supervision, the lack of management in the lab, uh, the, the employees were in the labs lab by themselves essentially for pretty much all day, and there was just a couple of them really in the lab, maybe two to three people in the lab all day long, really very little supervision. Um, she became addicted to drugs and she started using the reference standards. Uh, yeah, methamphetamine in oh, this yeah, case. The med- and liquid, liquid methamphetamine.
1: Um, like, he said, like, what we thought was just, like, a bottle in a fridge of liquid meth. And, them, and showing her taking, like, a drop and, like, putting it in her Coke or, you know, a dropper full, you know, a couple drops in her mouth. And that was enough meth, you know, to, to energize her for the day. And I'm like, who has reference standards like that? Like. <laughs> What? I, I, I've
0: never seen reference standards. No. Like that. I, mean, I mean, you and we, we work in the same place. I mean, essentially the same type of labs. Um, and we only have, like, you get a milliliter of a concentrated cocaine standard in methanol or acetonitrile or whatever solvent. And, I mean, you don't have a whole liter of a concentrated substance in some sort of oil or whatever they were that had yeah. been diluted in. Um, uh, but yeah, she started using liquid meth dosing herself out of a, uh, out of a dropper, out of a pipette essentially. And, um, what floored me was that, I mean, it, there was really, she never really discussed at least it wasn't shown in the, the, the documentary of what, what doses was she consuming? Was she actually monitoring dosages? I mean, was she just taking a dropper full or I mean, a, a pipette full and,
1: I don't think she knew what she was doing
0: <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I mean it became very daily. I mean daily it became daily. She'd use it every day. It escalated to her taking home yeah uh, some of the reference standards um, and then she was using multiple times per day. like you said it snowballed really fast. and then the liquid meth bottle finally depleted. It was finally it finally ran out. it was running really low where it was noticeable. That she was consuming, or somebody was I mean, using a large amount of the substance over time. So this is what I didn't get. They finally have an audit. Or supervision to the supervisor finally decides, let's go through the reference standards and have a full audit of all our reference standards. Because Dude, it hasn't been first. done in years. And <laughs> she's a chemist. She decides that uh, she freaks out and decides to mix this oil-based standard with a bunch of water. Which, I mean, if you know oil and water, I mean... Don't mix. But <laughs> what, what happens there? And um, they eventually, I mean, dis- discard it. I guess the she they, they said in the, the series something about the... Was it supervisor thought it had just was old or something and
1: yeah it's just like degraded or something and now we have like they're not miscible they don't mix together and yeah. kind of like a little shruggy dude and it's like i don't know and they just tossed it <laughs> and they just tossed it out so which makes no sense it's like you got methamphetamine it's like the simplest compound out there it's like what's it gonna degrade to that isn't gonna be soluble in it in itself yeah. like um what
0: well it it questions i mean again it leads to questions um, about supervision and i mean who's
1: who's the supervisor in the lab i mean honestly well we d- i don't know the answer to that but towards the end of this we'll probably get back to i think our shared opinion about who's really running these labs and oh, yeah. their association with law enforcement i we'll, already we'll, yep. we'll, we'll get we'll, we'll get
0: there <laughs> Yeah, so after the meth, dis- this, I mean, this was discarded. She found the amphetamine reference standard. Um, she moved on to amphetamine, and then shortly thereafter, she began snorting cocaine in the lab, and she began doing it with reference standards, if I remember correctly, um, yeah. uh, and because she had powder reference standards, and then um, she started skimming off drug exhibits, which is. Ultimately, where that evidence tampering comes into play, she starts taking sub like evidence and using it herself. Um, she became under the influence at work pretty
1: regularly, every day, all day long. Um, and in some was taking hundreds of grams of cocaine, um, and the, the part where she made crack cocaine, so she took, you know, powdered yes. cocaine. Went into the lab at night and made crack cocaine. Floored me so that she could smoke crack cocaine ten or twelve times during the day at work. It's like I knew, it. I knew back in the day that she she admitted to using drugs at work. I didn't know it was this bad. Like, you know, taking like ten or fifteen minute breaks, like a dozen times a day to go smoke crack, and no one noticed anything. No no one, one.
0: Well, I mean, there was only a couple of people there, so, I mean, really, I mean, if you're all busy doing your work, I mean, I can see why, I mean, if one or two people are there and you're normally doing your work by yourself and there is no supervision, um, it's easy. It would be easier to get away with that. I mean, obviously, someone's going to notice, I would hope. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, she, I mean, if I remember correctly, cocaine cocaine seizures in the lab started to decrease. Um, yeah. And that is when she tried ketamine for the first time. And then she also, again, started smoking crack. She started, she made a crack pipe with a pipette in the lab. And uh, she started smoking at her workstation. She started smoking in the evidence room. She smoked at the exhaust, the fume hood inside the lab. Um, Just out in the open, smoking crack. I mean, part of me thinks
1: she wanted to get caught. I mean, it seems that way because she was, you're smoking crack in a forensics lab at work.
0: Like (laughs) it's blatant. I mean, obviously blatant. Um, uh, She started synthesizing crack at her desk. I mean, making crack from cocaine, making crack cocaine. And um, she, at some point, tried liquid LSD as well. But that I
1: explored mean, me too. And didn't he, she didn't measure a dose supposedly. No, I mean, most of it's like micro dosed out on the blotter paper. So you're, you're getting like milligram at a time. And if she has just like pure liquid LSD or super concentrated and she puts a drop on her tongue, she's going to be tripping balls. And she <laughs> talked about it. Like she was, tripping, um, you know, visual hallucinations. But yet she still worked that day. Like she allegedly got work done. And that was the part that was weird to me. Well not weird. Is she claimed she was still doing her job and she wanted to do her job very well because if she screwed up, she was gonna get caught and would all come tumbling down. So her her plan was to not get caught. Her plan was to do her work really well not have anybody question her work so she could just keep doing what she was doing. I mean, she was addicted to the drugs. I mean, she was dependent because, Mm -hmm. you know, they alluded later on that, you know, she tried to go sober, um, but she had withdrawal symptoms and which is why people relapse and why people continue using because, I mean, that's, I mean, from what we know, the withdrawal from Um, like stimulants and methamphetamine is just horrible Mm -hmm. and that's what they want to keep using again that's why they want to keep using is not so much to get that high is to keep from feeling that horrible Um, so I I found myself you know empathizing with her and being a little sympathetic to her um, as opposed to Annie Dukin I'm not saying Sonia's an angel by any means. She screwed up royally, but she admitted she screwed up. Mm -hmm. Um, She got herself into a hole. And, and again, she was an addict. She, um, you know, was dependent upon the drugs and was making decisions that she knew were bad to continue using. I mean, that's kind of the textbook definition of, you know, being addicted is, you know, one, you're dependent upon it. And, Two, you're making bad choices um, mm-hmm. to continue using, and she was making horrible choices. Yeah, very, very horrible choices. And uh, I mean, like you
0: said, I, 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 still go back to that liquid LSD. <laughs> I, 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 don't, e- I can't I, even think about what that would be like tripping. I she did it once,
1: so yeah, I, it was I... only,
0: it was only once. <laughs> it wasn't but
1: a good experience.
0: <laughs> I mean, tripping out in a forensic lab. While trying to do your work,
1: I don't see how that's possible. I mean, I and not have somebody, anybody, that day see you and think that you're okay. Yeah. Like, so I mean, there she, were a lot of red flags. Yeah, definitely,
0: definitely a lot of red flags. I mean, but she ultimately, like we said, she got um, what was it, 18 months in prison,
1: which. And, and, which I don't get either. So she, she was, you know, arrested and charged and convicted of tampering with evidence. So essentially just, you know, stealing um, drugs from work for personal use. So, I mean, basically stole drugs to use. And she got 18 months. Her work was putting people away for years and years. Um, you know, that, that one case, the um, the Cuban gentleman, uh, Pinate He was sentenced to seven years for selling, you know, 10 or 20 bucks worth of heroin. And seven years. And she's stealing drugs from work and got 18 months. It's just, just, it's, that that doesn't compute to me. It's, I mean, it's the backwards. she have been in jail longer. It's, I mean, it's, it's drug laws
0: and policy and how we've, I mean, the United States policy of, <laughs> of, I mean, we demonize drug use and the normal user or the normal dealer will be put away for long periods of time yeah. for something very small when you really, if you're going to be worrying about this sort of thing, you really need to worry about the large scale dealers and not just the small scale um, I mean the large scale distributors and suppliers and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but she, um, yeah. So, so during the, the initial trial, um, and, and follow up, I mean, ultimately there was
1: determined to be a cover up. That was the worst part of this. Yes. This is the part that made me upset. So yeah, Sonia Ferrick, she was using drugs at work, stealing drugs from work not exactly an angel at all um but a good example of what can happen when people become dependent and addicted upon drugs they make horrible life choices with real consequences um not only affecting her but other people you know people that she was working you know to help put away um so there's that side of it but the worst part again was the cover-up By the state of Massachusetts and the attorney general attorney general's office in Massachusetts, covering up how long she had been using drugs at work. They wanted to say it was like, oh, just the last six months when, in fact, it was (laughs) like the last eight years um, ever since she joined the lab in 2004 and withholding um, evidence from the defense attorneys, um, you know, not handing it over in discovery, not. You know, providing all that exculpatory evidence—you know, the evidence that would, you know, help the defense—that's the worst crime in in my mind. Oh yeah, um,
0: you know, yeah, for I mean, that- ult- ultimately, it was uh, they did, like you said, they determined that, that the evidence tampering went back to July of 2012. So it was really, like you said, the only the last six months of her job, on the job, uh, before being arrested, um, she. I uh, was using they said or she was tampering with evidence did. Um, so anyone basically um, ultimately cases before July 2012, they were saying, hey, nothing happened. we don't know. It was only the last six months of her job. Um, I, and then yeah, the exculpatory evidence part of it it kind of I mean it still burns me to this day learning that I mean, that they essentially the AG's office, the attorney general's office, prosecutor's offices, um, uh, were bur- burying exculpatory evidence. I mean, they were covering up, um, that this went on a lot longer and affected a crap load of other cases, more cases than the initial six months.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, during the, i mean thankfully there was a defense attorney that was just very dogged in this and just wouldn't let it go and to have it you know go to court and you know to get all this evidence released and to have you know the judge say that you know there was fraud committed upon the court at the hands of the attorney general's office i mean the people in that office should be in jail right now Mm -hmm. i mean there's no way around it i mean they lied to judges I mean, they withheld evidence. They they lied about it. I mean, I mean that, that just puts into question like the whole you know justice system that they have in Massachusetts. I mean, that's to me the worst crime um, on this side of the case. You know, um, again, Sonya did was wrong, horrible. Um, makes all the forensics look bad. But what that attorney general's office did made the entire justice system in Massachusetts um, look horrible. And I wouldn't trust anything coming out of there. Um, But on the other hand, I understand probably what they were thinking. I mean, this came hot on the heels of Annie Dukin's case. Um, And, you know, they're talking about overturning like, you know, 20, 30 plus thousand convictions. And then, whoa, here's another scandal um, coming to light, also in Massachusetts. So I can see why they might want to try to downplay it a bit. And they may have just gotten in over their heads, um, probably rushed it a bit. They just wanted to, like, sweep it under the rug um, and let it go. And really the best thing they could have done has been, like, you know what? Everything she touched in the last eight years since she's been here. We're overturning those convictions. We're moving on from this. That would have been the smart, wise thing to do. But. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. It, it's just
0: it, it's it's just baffling, mind-boggling, whatever the word you want to use. Because um, I it just going back to I mean the, the paper the paper trail in the end helped. I mean that the defense attorney um, kind of piece together. Like, they were using that information that she was at work or she was working, I think it was December 22nd. And she had notated something in her mental health file um, from that doctor's file that she was something about a Patriots game. And they went back and determined that when was the last time the Patriots game played, Patriots played a home game on, it would have been 12-24 on Christmas Eve. Yeah. And they pieced that back with... Okay, it would have been this date that she that she was working on this date. And I believe that was the actual day that she had used LSD. It, it was, yeah. And they pieced it back that she was she had used LSD that day. She had documented that she did work on that day, that morning and afternoon. and but it was found out through those, Those doctors, those mental health visits, sheets, those worksheets that she had filled out, and a Patriots, New England Patriots game um, that she had been talking about or written down about. So I I thought that was pretty wild from the the paper trail aspect of
1: it, the audit trail. Um, Good investigation. But you know what the worst part of that was? What? Is the Patriots won that game. (laughs) (laughs) They, They beat the Dolphins. I think it was like... 27 to like 24 or something like that. So damn it. But anyways. Tom Brady strikes again. Damn it. He does.
0: Yep. Oh, but either way, I mean, I in I just the gall of some of these people in this. I uh, the the one uh uh was her name, what was her name, Chris Foster. Yeah. Um, she refused. I mean, it in the there were motions to look at the evidence, they were denied. Um she refused to answer judges' questions, um, said she had looked at the evidence, um, and then after reviewing the file said that everything had been turned over. So then there was a, the motion that the defense had filed for like motion to inspect had been denied after that. Then they went to the paper trail with the Patriots game and the LSD, determined that she had used LSD. So that was in 2011. They tracked down that year. Um, so that meant she was using prior to the 2000 July, 2012, because they said only before they were only looking at ju- back to July, 2012, this showed that she was using drugs in the lab in 2011. So that opened up a wider scope yeah. um, of investigation. And uh, I, that is when, um, they determined that ultimately, I mean, the exculpatory evidence had not been turned over as what should have been done by law. And I believe that Fisher character even said something about... She, again, she had not reviewed a single document in the fraud case at all. Yeah. So she yes, didn't know what evidence book. was or was not turned over.
1: But I don't, I don't believe that. I They knew exactly what that evidence was and what it meant that it that would prove that she'd been using for a longer period of time um so either they i think they either knew what that evidence was and that's why they didn't want to release it at all because if, if they're saying like hey this evidence is like it's just paperwork it doesn't mean anything at all it's just garbage in her, the trunk of her car and they really believe that they're like dude knock yourself out if you yeah, want they would return that her- they're like, go for it, dude. Waste your time. I don't care. Here's here's um, so five here's, boxes. Just turn it over. Yeah, knock yourself out. We don't we don't care. Um, so they knew what was in there, I think, and that's why they were fighting hard to keep it from being released to them and, and lying to judges. I mean, and then to say, oh, well, we didn't know what was in there. We, I never looked at it. It's, give me a break. Um, so I really believe they knew that there were documents in there that would prove how long she had been using drugs in the laboratory. Yeah. So, I mean,
0: ultimately I think it gets back to what you had just said. I mean, you, you alluded to earlier and what was that in regards to kind of our opinions on um, kind of the supervision slash who's running these sort of labs really. I mean, when you talk about we're talking about AG's offices and the uh, 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 prosecuting attorneys and uh, people answering
1: to them. I mean, your thoughts. I mean, I mean, a lot of these crime labs are um, supervised and run by and under the umbrella of law enforcement. So you have, you know, law enforcement, you know, making an arrest. an attorney general's, I mean, um, a prosecutor's office, you know, charging someone. And then under that same umbrella of the law enforcement is the people doing the analysis of the drugs. I mean, creating, you know, the, the reports to put these people away. And there's just a huge conflict of interest of having law enforcement making the arrest, law enforcement providing the evidence that they did something wrong, and then working closely with the district attorneys for the prosecution. Um, they should, these labs should be 100% neutral. They, they shouldn't have a dog in the fight, so to speak. They should just test the evidence. If it's drugs, great. If it's not drugs, that's great too. What do they care? It doesn't matter. So when like in the Annie Dukin case, I mean, she was getting emails and calls from district attorneys, like, hey, you know, where's the report on this case? You know, we're, you know, we need it quickly, you know, we're going to court and stuff like that. That should never happen. There should never be that type of relationship to where a district attorney is contacting a bench level analyst for a report. And then they feel obligated to get them that report. And in a weird sort of way, feel like you're part of the system and like, well, I'm going to give them the answer that they really want to hear. They want to hear that it's, Um, cocaine and not just baby powder or, you know, marijuana, not just oregano or something like that. And, you know, it's, it just calls into question the work that they do. I mean, in your lab and in my lab, we don't work with, I mean, maybe you work somewhat with, with law enforcement, but I, I don't, there's no need to, I mean, we're completely separate from law enforcement. Um, never have the occasion to talk to them except for going over a report over the phone to explain results to them. But there's just no one breathing down our neck for, you know, you know, what's this report going to say? You know, we want it to look good for us. It's we're just a neutral party here. Again, like you said, it's, you know, we're finding the truth through science and that's it.
0: Exactly. It's a, uh, it, it, like in my situation, uh, well, we work with both defense and prosecutors and that sort of thing, um, but it's you're, you don't get calls from prosecutors in regards to, okay, what's my report going to say and why I need it to really be positive? And you don't get – I mean that's not something you see. You should never see that. Um, it's more of, okay, we get a lot of, okay, when's my case going to be done sort of mm-hmm. issue, and we're just like, well, our standard turnaround time is this. And it'll be done when it gets done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that sort of scenario. But I, uh, and then if, I mean, the only time you really talk, like you said, the only time you really talk to a prosecutor or even a defense attorney is if you're reviewing a case with them, Hey, this is what the report says. And this is what it means. You interpret the report for them, um, in regards to the case. And if you're going to provide some sort of testimony, um, but other than that, I mean, there's very little contact with, I mean, should be very little contact with, uh, uh, that's the prosecuting attorneys and defense attorneys and judges and, and all of that. And then I even, if I remember correctly, one of those emails that Dukin had gotten that they had shown on the screen said something about even the weights of the, the sample. So, of course, if you have a certain amount of cocaine. And uh, if it's a greater weight, I mean, whatever certain weights will trigger certain sentences, certain other penalties, like enhanced penalties.
1: felony. So, yes. and-
0: yeah. So he, he I, if I remember correctly, I saw, I thought I saw an email saying something about, yeah, I really needed to come back greater than this weight because we'll really get him if he had, if he essentially, if he's over, five grams or 10 grams or whatever it was. Um, But yeah, that's, that is those sort of relationships. Those sort of relationships are, are are frowned upon and should not occur. I mean,
1: in in my opinion and probably yours too is, you know, that's why these labs shouldn't be under control of law enforcement as a lot of them are. I mean, um, I think in the Massachusetts, labs. They were, um, you know, under, well, it's the state police labs, isn't it? State state patrol, right? Yep. Yep. It was. Um, and it, it shouldn't be, they should just be an independent laboratory. I mean, they can be, you know, a state laboratory, you know, staffed and funded by the state of Massachusetts, but they shouldn't be, you know, commanded by like a Lieutenant or a captain or a major or something like that. I mean, that just shouldn't happen. I think in the Amherst lab, there was um, a guy that, you know, was like close to retirement. He was promoted to major and then, you know, put in charge of, you know, the the Amherst, you know, crime lab. It's like you're in law enforcement. Um, You shouldn't be arresting people and then providing the evidence (laughs) to put them Mm -hmm. away. Um, They should be run by people that are in forensics and that's probably the problem with the supervision too. You know, if I don't know who supervised these people. Yeah. I don't don't know know either. I don't know if they were in forensics or are they part of law enforcement? And if they're in law enforcement, they don't understand forensic standards and things like that. And, um, you know, supervision, you know, make sure people aren't stealing drugs and stuff like that. It's just weird. Let, let toxicologists and forensics scientists, you know, do, do their job and keep the police out of it. Yeah, I and
0: and I don't think the, the series actually mentioned anything really about what happened to the supervisors or and that's what I still don't know. And I would love to find out like what I mean, after like the Dukin case or after the Farrak case, the case, um. What happened? I mean, after the labs were shut down. I mean, after like Dukin's lab was shut down or whatever, or whoever's lab. Um, I did where'd anything they, where'd they go? What are they doing? I mean, did so, they have any sort of repercussions from I mean, obviously yeah. not doing their job properly? I mean, I, I would have the, a feeling it would follow it should follow you around at least
1: a while. Well, you would think so. But, I mean, we know people that have been embroiled that's, in scandal and, you know, promoted upwards. That's that's um, very much true, yes. It is. I mean, in the Hinton lab, the Annie Duke case, I mean, I know the director was fired. They mentioned that another chemist was fired. I, I don't know why. And, you know, the lab shut down. But if the director is part of, you know, a state trooper or something like that, I mean, they just get reassigned somewhere else. And then, you know, these chemists are uh, working somewhere else. Um, And in the Farrat case, I know that lab was shut down as well. Where are they doing their testing now? Do you know? No, I don't know. I have have no clue. I honestly haven't even thought about
0: it. I wonder. Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder
1: if I could find out
0: somehow. Because I don't know where they would... Massachusetts... Was it State Patrol, State Crime Lab? I. It's a good question because I don't know. I mean, and that's what it was never really touched on in this series was. Um, I'm sure there's other locations for the police crime labs, but um, the main lab is in Maynard, Massachusetts. Um, but I don't know what other what other locations they have or, or whatever. But yeah, ultimately, um, like I said before, the Dukin case was, I mean, kind of knew a lot about that and that is what it was. And this one focused a lot more on the Frock case. And uh, ultimately I didn't know a lot of that that came out of this. I didn't know. I mean, the Duke and the Duke was really bad, really, really bad. Making stuff up, passing work off as your own when you didn't do a single thing that is terrible. I mean, very, very terrible. And uh, she ultimately got off really, really easy. Uh, Farrakh, you feel a little bad for her uh, in regards to the addiction, the dependence, um, and then the. You feel really, really angry, I think, at the 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 overall cover-up at the end. Yeah. I mean that's that's what what really
1: didn't know about because well, because they covered it up. And so what we heard in the news was she stole drugs from the lab, used some drugs at at work, was caught, fired, and it was like okay, they're gonna overturn some cases going back six months or something, and then it just kind of died off and you know, we don't hear, you know, the work behind the scenes to uncover this cover up, you know, over the subsequent like one or two years. Um, you know, that doesn't I mean, the news cycle has moved on by then. So, yeah, all of that was new to me and, you know, the extent of her her drug use and all that. Um, but one thing about like the Annie Ducan case that that bothered me, too, is how much attention it got. Um, what she did was horrible and all that, you know, the making up reports of falsifying data um, and putting people behind bars based upon not doing the work. But then I, I was thinking about, well, what about these police officers that, you know, plant evidence on people? I mean, they have, like, body cam footage of, like, planting drugs on people. It's like, where's the outrage about that? I mean, we're outraged for, like, five minutes. I mean, what they're doing is is even worse, <laughs> I, I think
0: it, I think it's kind of a power, I mean, it, it, it's one of those situations where it, we know that sort of stuff happens a lot in law enforcement. We know it does. We've seen it happen a lot. and I mean, it's very, very terrible. It's some of the worst things you can do, plant drug evidence. I mean, especially I mean some of these dumbasses out there, are on camera and they're doing this. And I I think it's just because ultimately like it or not, a certain subsection of the population has become numb to it. So you do hear the outrage from certain sections of the population, from people of color. You definitely hear outrage about that. You definitely hear media reporting on that. But uh, I mean, it is very, as you said, it. it it's one of those situations where you, you learn about it, you see it happen, small portion of the population is really outraged and rightfully outraged about it, and then the people that are really in charge, sadly, kind of move on to the next thing. They, yeah. they something else happens, and they move on. So... Um, yeah, no, I agree. There, it it got a lot of play, and rightfully so. But there's this sort of thing happens a lot in law enforcement, yeah, and it's kind of forgotten about a lot of times. And this sort of thing happens. I mean, it's pretty. I mean, the known cases are pretty rare. I think. Um, I believe there was a forensic chemist in Oklahoma City. She worked for Oklahoma City Police Department. And this was... uh, uh, When was this? This was back in the early 2000s. I think it was around 2000, 2001. She was um, uh, basically fired for uh, some sort of falsifying evidence to help prosecutors. I think her last name was Gilchrist. I think she's now passed away. Um, But she had... Um, I believe a lot of her evidence had um, led to at least part of her evidence had been used um, in, I think, of about 23 death penalty cases. Oh, wow. And um, 12 of which who had already been sentenced to death and actually been executed. Um, so there was that. I know of another case um, in Florida. Um. His name was Joey Graves. Um, I had actually talked to the guy a few times. And uh, he uh, worked for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement labs. And he was eventually caught stealing, taking drugs from evidence lockup, replacing them with certain things, and then essentially selling oxycodone from evidence.
1: That's right. That was like, when was that? Like 2010, 11, 12, something like that. Yeah, it was around 12, 13, I think. Was this the case where there was like a police officer on the stand and, you know, they're talking about like, oh, yeah, we found him with like, you know, you know, 10 oxycodones in them. And so the, the lawyer handed him like the packet, you know, the, the manila envelope of evidence and said, you know, were these the ones that you found? So he opened it up and there's like nothing in there or something. I think that was something like that. And, and he's like, wait a minute, there's nothing in here. Where did it go? <laughs> and it's like, oh crap. It's like, uh oh. But yeah, there was, um,
0: I, I if I remember correctly, because I don't have it in front of me, but they, they determined that he actually stole somewhere around the order of like 5,000 pills over a couple of years. And, um, there was actually no evidence that he falsified data, but he was actually taking substances and then selling them on the street. Yeah. And that included oxycodone, oxycontin, Vicodin, uh, Xanax, Valium, um, benzos, and opiates, basically.
1: Yeah. And, you know, one thing I was thinking about in the the Ferrat cases, you know, people are wondering, like, well, how did she get away with this? How, did, how could she do this? And it's like, well, no one knows – how to, you know steal from the workplace more than the employee they they know you know the habits and um the security and the practices of what's mm-hmm. going on in the lab it's like with Ferox, like she knew no one's like checking the evidence room or doing audits and stuff like that it could just be a free-for-all and and you know same with that um that other gentleman you were talking about they you know have an intimate knowledge of the practices of you know their workplace it's kind of like, you know, you watch a movie and, you know, a crime happens, and, you know, like, um, you know, an armored truck service or something. And they're like, oh, it's an inside job. Well, how do they know it's an inside job? Well, because who else could have done it? You know, they, they yeah. have that knowledge of, you know, what's going on, you know, what they can get away with. And so, I mean, it's surprising and not surprising. Yeah, she and, knew. She knew.
0: I mean, the coming was going. Yeah. I mean, she knew, I mean, the habits of the employees that were there with her. Um, She knew when or if the supervisor would poke his head in or whoever it was would poke their head in and be potentially be there during certain days of the week. Possibly, you know, the schedules of all your colleagues and employees, you know, I mean, you know best the, the processes that it
1: would take. To do that sort of thing? I mean, and that, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, after these cases came out, you know, I was, you know, the supervisor of our lab and, you know, I thought about our practices and, you know, thinking, like, how could this happen or how could we prevent it? And what it comes down to is you can't. Um, there really aren't any practical safeguards where if somebody wanted to steal evidence or you know tamper with things that they could find they could find a way to do it if they wanted to um and so it just comes down to trust um trust that you know people care about their jobs and the work that they do and that they wouldn't do something like that i mean it like it wouldn't cross my mind to do that i mean we know how much these drugs are worth and, you know, what they can be sold for, you know, on the mm-hmm. street, especially like oxycodone. You know, in its heyday, it was a dollar a milligram. He's, you, you know, siphon off an 80 milligram oxycodone. You, you can sell that for like 80 bucks. Um, so there's a lot of money in it. But for people like us, it's never crossing our minds at all. So there's a lot of trust involved. And... You know, there's a certain type of person that goes into forensics, and most of these people are really honest people. Um, I mean, I know the people I work with, it would never cross their minds. Um, You know, I mean, I I joked with, um, you know, some people that came into the lab to do some training. And I think I told her, like, you can just leave, like, your purse in the conference room or something like that. It's fine. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah, where's it going to go? I said, uh, I could put a hundred dollar bill on the counter here and it will be here for a year. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was shocked at that. And another like service guy, you know, after he left the building, you know, came running back in, you know, hours later, he's like, Oh my God, I left my, my iPad, like, you know, in your instrument room. Um, I'm like, okay. And he's like, is it still there? I'm like, yeah, where else is it going to go? I mean, it's like, you could leave it here for years and we'd have to wipe the dust off of it. It's just, <laughs> it's not going anywhere. Like, well, why would we steal something? It's this is our workplace. It's a forensics lab. Um, yeah. But at the very end of this documentary, they're talking to, um, you know, some people I think were in like the attorney general's office or mm-hmm. you know something like that, and they're like, why would we have people you know around drugs and that we don't drug test them. Ah, I brought, I I wrote that down. (laughs) (laughs) We think alike, Evan. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but I'm sure a lot of people watching this documentary are like, they're not drug tested. And no, I mean, I remember going to work, you know, for our forensics lab and we collect evidence. We have drugs and stuff like that all over the place. And I remember, you know, showing up for work the first day, and um, I mean, you, you know, my my former boss. Um, I was like, so there's no like drug test or anything like that. And she's like, do we need to? And I'm like, <laughs> no. But I was just kind of expecting one. <laughs> she's like, well, okay then.
0: <laughs> well, that's <laughs> that's good. that's funny because I've been I've been in this field for seven or it'll be seventeen years next month, and I have not been drug tested one time.
1: No, neither have I. Over 10 years, it's no pre-employment drug testing, no post-employment drug testing. I mean, you go to work at McDonald's and they're drug testing you, mm-hmm. um, either pre-employment or post-employment drug testing you. I mean, for you know, low-level jobs, I mean, you know, for kids, it's ridiculous. Um, it's ridiculous that they're drug testing them. I don't think we should be drug tested personally. Um, I find I'm not a fan. I find it, you know, my, my shock is not that, Oh my God, we should be doing drug testing. It's that in this age and era that we live in with all these other industries being drug tested that we're not is like, seems a little weird. Like, well, why wouldn't they? But I also think, you know, why would you drug test people? Um, You know, like, what are you trying to find out? Like, you know, why are you encroaching on my liberties? Um, You know, if you think I'm a drug user or something like that, well, don't hire me.
0: (laughs) Well, and then I think it goes down to, okay, if I'm intoxicated or I feel or if you feel that I'm impaired or intoxicated on the job, okay, drug test the hell out of me. I mean, I'm of that opinion. But – Workplace accident, something like that. I mean, where there is a need for it or some sort of suspicion, but a random drug test, uh, urine drug test, especially, um, I'm kind of like, ah, that, number one, what's it going to do? I mean, what are you going to do with that? Um, With that information, I mean, if if the person comes back positive for, I mean, if they're a model employee – I mean nothing. I mean never wrong, and they got a random drug test, and now they've got they're positive for I don't know. I mean six acetal morphine and morphine in their urine, or whatever it might be,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so heroin. And what are you going to do with that? I mean, obviously they've used heroin at some point, but it's not affecting their job yeah it's illegal sure but i, I mean i mean does in, you
1: fire you, the person i mean you fire I mean, them What's, you what are they going to do do you, do you think they're going to be more prone to you know like steal from the workplace or something like that or steal drugs and if you think that well then you really need to rethink your practices at work they exactly. try to prevent something like that so one i find it just Odd that we're not drug tested, and two, we definitely shouldn't be either. Um, yeah. So, I'm not really conflicted on the issue at all. I just find it weird. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I
0: did write that down here, <laughs> and then they brought up random drug testing as a potential solution to to this, and I'm thinking to myself, no, that is not an answer at all. And yeah, I. <sighs> I mean, of all the things to think about, I mean, drug testing is not what you need to think about here.
1: No. So. Better practices and programs in place to try to prevent something like dry labbing or stealing from the workplace. Um, you know, need to be employed, proper supervision, and things like that. Um, but not making your employees suspects or making them feel like, you know, they're criminals or doing something wrong. I mean, you know, I go back to, you know, there's trust involved that Mm -hmm. your employees aren't going to steal from work and that that trust goes all the way around, Mm -hmm. you know, from management on down and, you know, from, you know, the the lowest level employee all the way up to the highest, you know, the certain level of trust there. And if you don't have that trust, you're not going to have a functional lab at all. And, you know, if you're treating your employees like they're up to no good and you feel like you have to drug test them, you know, you, you probably need to rethink some other things going on in, exactly. in your lab. Exactly. Exactly. Well,
0: <laughs> well, I think we've talked this quite a bit here. We and, have.
1: We, we tend to talk.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do tend to talk, and um, I mean, from the the series standpoint, um, I mean, did you like the series? I mean, did I mean other than bringing back those very strong emotions about and feelings about um, dry labbing and cover ups and, and all of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the Annie Dukin part um, just made me angry all over again. You know, primarily because of what she did. The close relationship with the district attorneys that I, and prosecutors that I think should never exist, and that she just really I don't think had any remorse at all, um, you know, no explanations from her, again, no real feeling of remorse. In the Farah case, uh, I learned a lot about it, you know, just the depth of you know what her addiction and dependence was was like and you know it made her more sympathetic than before Mm -hmm. you know when it first came out it's just like oh you know she's just you know stealing drugs from work and got caught and all that and didn't really know the whole scope of it um so she was a more sympathetic um person in this documentary but it was the cover-up that i didn't really know about at all um and that was just infuriating to me and that that's the worst part of the whole documentary, uh, but it was very well done. I'm gonna have to check out the filmmaker's other works. It sounds like she she really knows what she's doing and did a great job. The the part I liked, especially in the Farak cases, they had these little um, I don't know what they're called. You know when they just had the little snippets of like someone working in the lab and so forth. They had these shots of someone handling drugs, like in like way, <laughs> no, no gloves at all. No PPE. They're like, <laughs> un- yeah. They're like <laughs> unwrapping like, um like bricks of like, you know, black tar heroin and stuff like that. No gloves, nothing just like scooping it up with their fingers. <laughs>
0: like, yeah. I, I it, I've talked to a couple people and that had worked in like drug crime labs And they said that there was times where they wouldn't wear gloves, which very much surprised me.
1: (laughs) That seems weird to me.
0: I mean, coming from tox, I mean, where you're wearing gloves all the time. time. I mean, you're dealing with post I mean, forensic post mortem tox. You're dealing with post mortem blood and, and tissues, kidney and liver and brain tissue and gastric contents and whatever it might be.
1: But, but aren't they afraid of like touching fentanyl and just dying on the spot? <laughs> That's a whole.
0: <laughs> that, that does I, make I'm me joking, wonder. people. I mean, yeah, that doesn't work that way, people. Yeah, but yeah. even though the police say it does, and, and whoever else says it does, it does work. I I've touched plenty of fentanyl. Um, shown people this, and I mean as a demonstration. I mean, holding fentanyl powder, um, that sort of thing. That's not normal. Don't do that. I mean, but
1: it's not going to happen.
0: I lived. I'm here talking. I did not die. Um, But yeah, it's that that is that did stick out to me as well as kind of the hey, lack of PPE, really. I mean, lack of lack of gloves in some sort. I mean, you're weighing out stuff you're weighing out cocaine you're weighing out heroin you're 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 touching powder i mean are you potentially touching powder you're working with
1: liquids yeah you probably should be wearing gloves so i mean i don't know what their practices were in those labs um and obviously it was recreated for the documentary um so i I don't know why they they made those choices without gloves maybe it was just aesthetics maybe just look better on film that way i don't know um maybe you can have her on your show and and talk about it (laughs) i would love for her to come on the show we could talk about this all day i I think i'm talking myself into being a producer on your show and and lining up guests for you (laughs) there we go if you know anybody hey we 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 can get people on here and
0: we can uh we can try (laughs) yeah but I mean, anyways, I, I thought the I thought the series was excellent. I liked it a lot, and I would again highly recommend going and checking out her other stuff, especially um, uh, the uh, "Mommy Dead and Dearest." Um, that it's a terrible story, terrible story, and it'll make you mad. But um, and then the "I Love You Now Die," the Michelle Carter texting story and I haven't seen the gymnastics one yet I almost
1: refused to watch that because it's just such a bad terrible story I don't know if I can stomach it to be honest though I, I when this documentary first came out you know this one that we we're just talking about I, I think I told you it's like I don't think I can watch this like I I can't bring myself to do it because it would make me angry but I'm glad I watched it um and like I said I, I, I learned a lot about the the frock case and um it it was good. I liked it. And so everyone out there listening, you should check it out on Netflix and, um, you know, give it a watch and, um, see what you all think about it. Yeah. Yeah,
0: definitely. So, um, with that, I think we'll probably end this. Um, uh, where can people find you? What are you doing these days? And, uh, you have anything, um,
1: social media wise, anything upcoming, uh, what's Um, going on with you? Well, I, um, I'm on Twitter. It's like at nature's poisons, all one word. Um, I have a blog where I write about, uh, natural based poisons and toxins and venoms. It's nature's poisons.com all one word. And because of that, that work in the writing about natural based poisons and toxins and venoms, um, I have a book that I'm busy writing. Um, about those natural based poisons that it will probably come out in about two years or so. Um, so it's, it's a a new thing that just came about. So, um, new book deal. I'm happy about that. And anxiously, um, not anxiously writing. I'm, I'm writing and anxious to get it done (laughs) and, um, and, you know, get to the next one. So that's what I'm up to. And, um, still working through the whole COVID coronavirus, coronavirus crisis. virus crisis trying to say that, coronavirus crisis. Um, you know, still working, um, you know, same as you, as best we can. You know, labs can't shut down completely. So Yeah, that's the hard part is, I mean, yeah, we can't, doing what we do, we can't shut down.
0: Um, I mean, there's always going to be deaths. I mean, you work in a post-mortem lab. Um, medical examiner's lab I work in a private post-mortem lab Um, so yeah people are always going to die people are always going to be um, deaths are going to be investigated from a toxicology perspective and uh, we can't necessarily shut down uh, but you go to kind of changing things up a little bit of how you're doing (laughs) things during this crisis and the pandemic Um, so we doing the best I mean everybody's doing the best you can it's yep. just, um, yeah, just a new way of doing things for however long. So, yep. All right. Well, well
1: thanks, thanks for having me again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You, you're on my other podcast too. You'll be coming up there. And, um, I, but this one, this is your first visit to the Toxcast and I'm it glad is. you were able to come on and talk about this series. Um, I got I'm no sure. To go. <laughs> and We're we're all stuck inside, so we're yeah. Gonna, there's nowhere to go and lots
1: to talk about. <laughs> Where am I going to go, Detroit?
0: <laughs> well, sir, I thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time. No and problem. We'll definitely have you on again soon. All right.
1: Well, I'll talk to you later. All right. All right. Have, have a good one. Have, have a good night. All right. See. Ya. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Yep. On a daily basis, I consume enough drugs to sedate Manhattan, Long Island, and Queens for a month. Okay, Mr. Jordan. I take quaaludes 10 to 15 times a day for my back pain. Adderall to stay focused. Xanax to take the edge off, pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and
0: morphine well. Because it's awesome. Morning, make Amazing. <laughs> Okay, folks, to uh, reach me, uh, you can reach me on Twitter at, at @toxcast. that is T-O-X-C-A-S-T. On Facebook, you can look up the Dose Makes the Poison podcast page and give it a like. And by email, you can uh, send a message to Dose Makes the Poison Podcast at gmail.com. And one final thing, venture over to Apple Podcasts. Uh, Leave a review for Dose Makes the Poison, the Toxcast. I'm always looking for new reviews for the show, um, and it really does help out a new show if you would leave a review and a few words about why you like or don't like the show. Either way, I'll take the review. I like constructive criticism. So again, Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Email me, look me up on Twitter, and look me up on Facebook. Until next time, my friends... Never practice toxicology in a vacuum.